Exodus 23, verse 20 and 21. Now in verse 20, the men of Israel, they're given another promise within this covenant. And this covenant, it is very special. God's saying, hey, I'm promising you these things, but as long as you keep these certain things intact, I'm going to give you all of these blessings. Here we see an angel, right? Perhaps in your Bible it's capitalized. That should give you an idea of who this angel is. We know that he has the name of God in him. We know that he has a lot of power that God says to be aware of him, to obey his voice, and to not provoke him because he's not going to pardon your transgressions and my name is in him. Again, interesting demands from the people of Israel for this angel. In the ESV, verse 21, it reads it in a better way. It says, pay careful attention to him, obey his voice, do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Again, this is a very special angel. We know the angel Gabriel. He has the word L in his name. Michael, he has the name L in his name. That's one of God's names, right? Elohim. But neither of these angels have people been commanded to be obedient to them. This is a very special angel. And Walter Kaiser, one of the commentators on this, says, This angel with the authority and the prestige of the name of God was evidence enough That God himself was present in his son. This is what scholars would call a Christophany or Jesus coming down to earth and dwelling with men before he was born of the Virgin Mary. We know that Jesus, his name is Yeshua and we know that God's name is Yahweh. So again, God's name is literally in the name of Jesus or in the name of Joshua. This is the same angel of the Lord that appeared to poor Hagar in Genesis 16, appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18, and even appeared to Moses with the burning bush. It starts off that the angel of the Lord met with Moses in the burning bush there in Exodus chapter 3. So again, the promise here given to the nation of Israel that they needed to pay careful attention to Christ, they had to obey his voice, The warning to not rebel against them because he will not pardon your transgression because my name is in him. We may read and say, that can't be Christ. This totally is Christ. The thing is that Christ has not yet died and resurrected and risen for us yet. So there was no pardon for sin. There was no pardon for our transgression. In the next chapter, we're going to see that they're going to have an altar and have to kill tons of oxen to be able to pardon their transgressions. And just as God was sending Jesus to go ahead of the nation of Israel to prepare a place for them, God does the very same thing for us today as believers. Go to John chapter 14. Let's turn there. And Jesus, he's preparing a very special place for us. He's gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And again, this is the old covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. And again... Got to pay attention to the context when we read scripture. God has not given us this covenant that Jesus is going before us, that now you can march into Coco Plum and you can say, the Lord has given me this land, right? That's not what this is saying whatsoever. But for us, Jesus has marched into a land that he's going to give us and prepare for us. And it's way better than Coco Plum or the Gables or wherever your dream Miami residence may be. But there in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, 
Jesus, he tells his disciples, he tells us, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Again, for us today as believers, Jesus has gone and he's preparing a place for us. And one day he's going to come again and receive us unto him that we may be with him in heaven. He's out there. He's preparing a place for us. He's preparing those perfect bodies for each and every one of us. So may we pay careful attention to him. May we obey his voice. May we not rebel against him and not rebel against his word. And glory be to God because of the new covenant He will pardon our sins. He will pardon our transgressions that even when we mess up, even when we sin, even when we fall, he is more than willing to forgive us of our sins. But may we not just use that as an excuse to live in sin. We go back to Exodus 23, and there's some people that they love the old covenant. I don't know why so much, but they just love the old covenant. They want to be bound by both covenants, right? The problem with the old covenant is the weight of, of the old covenant was based upon mankind being able to obey and heed the entire old covenant. Which maybe you guys are like just natural obeyers, right? You're just incredible at obeying. I'm not that great. My kids are just not that great at obeying. I know all of your kids are like incredible. They were born to obey, right? My kids not so much. I know not you guys, but there's a sign that says wet paint, don't touch. What's the first thing I want to do? How wet is that paint, right? How wet really is that paint? Speed limit says 55. Ah, we could do 60, right? Five, five miles over, right? Five miles over is okay. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 22, this all has one huge contingency. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Again, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant is based on Israel's performance. It's all based on if you obey. Thank God we get to live in the new covenant where everything is dependent on Jesus Christ and the work that he has already done for each and every one of us. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, family, if you're here and you're saved, God has given you all those blessings in and through Jesus Christ. Now we obey because we love him. Our obedience to him, it's not because, man, if I don't obey, God's going to just cut me off and I'm cast into hell right away. No, I want to obey because he's loved me so much, I want to love him back. Again, this is the power of the new covenant that we get to be a part of. Again, I thank the Lord that I don't have to be killing an animal every week to pardon my sins. Jesus Christ has once and forever died for our sins. Exodus 23, verse 23 and 24, it says, For my angel will go before you and bring you in to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I 
will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. G. Campbell Morgan, speaking on this, he says, Concerning the people to be driven out, it is worthy of note that this paragraph shows that their gods were their undoing. Everything in the life of a man or a nation depends on the character of its worship. Read that second half again. Everything in the life of a man or a nation depends on the character of its worship. Again, these surrounding nations, they were committing atrocities, right? They were sacrificing their young babies. They were committing bestiality. They were having sex parties, orgies, all these things. And for the past 400 years, God was about to enact justice upon them. And the reason they were living this way was their God's character was disgusting. The character of their gods was not pure, was not holy, was not righteous, and was not blameless. The only problem, or the only good thing, is that there's only one God whose character is truly holy and blameless. There's only one God whose character is pure love and righteousness, and that's the God of the Bible. And that's the danger for us, that's the danger for our nation, that if we are not worshiping the one true God of the Bible, our character is going to be just like the character of our God's. Our worship is going to just be like the character of our gods and it's going to be filthy and putrid and terrible. And now look at God's commandment. Not only does he command the nation of Israel to be defensive when it comes to these gods, don't bow down, don't serve, don't do their works, but he also wants them to be on the offensive when it comes to these gods. He wanted them to overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Let's turn quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 7. A couple pages to your right, about three books of the Bible to your right. And there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see the Lord getting more in depth here with his demands for the nation of Israel and how they deal with idols and how they deal with the gods of these foreign nations. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25 It tells us, you shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourself lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, For it is an accursed thing. Again, how evil were these Israelites to have God leading them, yet God's having to warn them, hey, don't go off and serve these false gods and false idols. Again, if you remember, they had a pillar of cloud leading them by day, a pillar of fire leading them by night. God has just given them the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, going before them, clearing the path, clearing the way, and bringing them into the promised land. And yet they would be tempted to follow after the other gods of the people that Christ and they are destroying to get into their land. How evil of these Israelites, right? Nothing like us, right? We would never do such a thing. It's not like we haven't seen the natural effects of someone filled with pride and how it's 
total destruction in their family. We've never seen what rebellion does in a young person, so it's okay if our kids do it. It's not like we haven't seen the effects of drinking and drugs on another person and how it's damaged their family, taken lives, and destroyed people. It's not as if we've seen what sex and pornography have done to people's character and minds and the atrocities that they're capable of afterwards. We've never seen what happens when someone in church completely isolates themselves and steps out of fellowship and gets away from the church. We've never seen anything like that, right? And yet our natural inclination, even though we have God, even though we have God's Word, even though we're filled with the Holy Spirit, even though we have the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, risen and resurrected, defeating sin and death, giving us freedom to humble ourselves under him and flee from sin. And what do we naturally turn to? Who do we naturally go to? What do we naturally want to bring into our lives? It's this sin. It's this idols, the very sin, the very idols that destroyed the nation that we're moving into. And yet we're tempted to say, you know what? I could bring a little bit of this into my house. It, it's okay if my kids are doing this. It, it's okay if my family's doing that. Right? We even have the blessed privilege to be a part of the body of Christ, people who we can turn to, we can talk with, we can have accountability with. And yet, where do we run to? Throughout the nation of Israel's history, they don't have many good kings. They have a few. One of them, he's an eight-year-old. When he becomes a king, his name is Josiah, right? Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And here, 2 Chronicles makes a note on Josiah how he did right in the sight of God. It talks about that he walked in the ways of David. It speaks of him seeking God. And now let's look at his actions towards idolatry and look at his actions towards sin. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1 through 4. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 years old, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the balls in his presence. And the incense altars which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke it in pieces. And he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Family, how do we treat our sin? How do we treat the idols within our lives do we treat them like a little cream puff like a little cupcake right do we just hide them somewhere in our kitchen and when we're looking for a little bite we go and we grab them or do we cut them off do we utterly destroy them how do we deal with our own sins do we sort of hide them somewhere so that in case of an emergency we can break glass and still have access to them when we're feeling down or sad or broken or do we completely destroy them? 
Do we completely cut them off? Because this is what God's word tells us. This is the way we are to treat our sins. As the dads here, the moms here, this is the way you should treat sin within your home. It shouldn't be something cute, something you play with. It should be something you utterly destroy. Again, it's to the point where Josiah, not only does he wipe out all the priests, but now he wipes out all the images, all the idols. He grinds them to dust, and they're putting the dust of these idols on top of the graves of these priests. Again, family, how do we deal with sin? How do we deal with idolatry? Do you want to walk in the ways of the Lord? Do you want to have a heart like David, right? We all say, yeah, I want to have a heart like David. I want to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart. I want to be able to take on Goliath. It starts with destroying sin in your life. Again, we have to be cutthroat when it comes to sin. Show no mercy when it comes to sin. The problem is, is that we're very good at showing no mercy in the sin in other people, right? But now to our own sin, we're saying, ay, pobrecito, right? Take it easy. Be gentle. I'm growing. I'm a work in progress. We should treat sin with all the hatred we have. All the pain that Christ went through was because of our sin. So again, how shall we treat it? We go back to Exodus 23. And not only did God want them to not serve those gods, not follow those gods, not bring them in. Not only did he want them to utterly destroy them. But then he wants them to go even more into the offensive. In verse 25, it says, So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. Again, not only don't serve their gods, not only destroy their gods, but also serve the Lord. The more you serve the Lord, the easier and simpler it's going to be to grow with God and to put on holiness. But it starts in that order. Not serving those idols, not serving sin and idolatry, cutting out the sin and idolatry in our lives, and then serving Christ. There's some people, they're in service, but they're not taking care of the things at home. And that's why they're not growing with the Lord. They're not maturing with the Lord. Their covenant in their mind is that there's some sort of scales where I can be this much in sin, but as long as I serve this much, then God doesn't care. God doesn't mind. And that's a lie. That's our flesh. The Lord first and foremost wants our holiness. He wants us to himself, and then he desires that service. And now look at the incredible promises that God had for them if they would only obey and keep their end of the covenant, right? If they'd only keep and obey their end of the contract. The first part is there in the second half of verse 25, that he would bless their food, bless their water. Then there'd be no sicknesses. He would take all the sicknesses away from among them. Again, this is not the new covenant. This does not apply to us today. This applies to the nation of Israel here as they're getting out of Egypt, going into the promised land. Verse 26, no one would suffer a miscarriage or be barren in your land. No woman, no animal would ever have a miscarriage or ever be barren. I will fulfill the number of your days. Again, the promise that God has for them. If they would only obey, not provoke him, not serve the idols, destroy the idols, and serve the Lord. Verse 27 and 28 God tells them, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. So here God promises to take care of them in supernatural ways and in supernatural ways, right? You could just write down Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. And here before the nation of Israel, the very first city they come to, it's a ginormous city with huge walls, huge fortifications. It's the city of Jericho. They send two of their spies in to check it out, see if there's any weak points within it where they can overcome them and destroy them. This woman named Rahab takes in those two spies and she speaks to them and she tells them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. And then in chapter 2 verse 11, she says, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Again, God promised that he would send confusion and fear into the hearts of their enemies. In Joshua 24 verse 12, a much uh, simpler and funnier way to take care of the enemies. Joshua 24 verse 12, it says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Again, this is a pretty great uh, form of warfare, right? Especially in ancient times, there's no bullets, no guns, no artillery, right? They only have arrows, and that's about it, right? That's the furthest you can shoot out. But now imagine you're getting ready for war, and you just hear, Right? And just swarms of hornets going on the enemy. Just get to stand and watch and laugh at them, right? Just laugh at them, right? As they're running and fleeing from the hornets. And God wanted to provide and care for his people. F.B. Meyer, he says, He who is an angel to the saint is a hornet to his foes. Again, the very same one that was going to be an angel to protect them and go before them and clear out the land to the enemy, he was going to be their destroyer. He was going to be the thorn in their side, if you would, right? The hornet in their side. And for us, whose side are we on? Are we obeying the word of God or are we not? Because again, then it's going to have a certain sting that we're saying, what in the world is going on here, right? And the Lord wants to do the same thing in our lives. For them, the Lord wanted to drive out the Canaanite, the Hittite. He wanted to drive them out from before them. And the Lord wants to do the same thing in our lives. He wants to drive out our enemies and the sin and the idolatry in our lives. Sandy Adams, I was listening to a teaching. He's great. He's awesome. He says, God would drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite. But for you, he wants to drive out those Friday nights. He wants to drive out the Bud Lights. And he wants to drive out the skin tights, right? The Lord wants to drive out sin in your life. The question is, are you allowing him to? Or are you sort of keeping these idols in your home? Again, they have to drive the idols out. They have to cast them aside, grind them to powder, get rid of them. And the Lord, he wants to drive out sin and idolatry in our lives. But we keep them around sometimes. Verse 29 and 30, it gives us the natural progression with how God wants to clear sin out of our life, how God wants to give us more and more blessings. It says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. 
Again, how does God say he's going to drive them out? Little by little. And the same is true in our relationship with Christ and our battle with sin. Some things, they disappear in an instant. When I gave my life to the Lord, before that I used to curse like a sailor. And it's amazing the work he did were right away. Again, those four-letter words didn't have the same power and hold over me. But there are other things that are long and slow battles. Where winning the ground battle, it's little by little. It's that game of inches, right? You're like, Lord, how am I still struggling with this? Lord, how am I still fighting with this, right? John Trapp, he says, God crumbles his mercies to us. And we have his blessings by small amounts. So the cloud empties not itself in a sudden burst, but dissolves upon the earth drop by drop. Again, God gives us the power to overcome these sins and these idols little by little. For the nation of Israel, there would be bad consequences if you would completely drive out the inhabitants of the land. There'd be no people there, no rule, no authority. We don't know if the bright lions, tigers, and bears would form an army and destroy all the people, right? Or rise planet of the apes and now they'd be fighting an ape army or something like that. But for us, there'd be consequences, If God would just clear all our enemies, clear all our sin, clear all our difficulties, if we're honest, I'll be honest, I think I would just leave him. I don't think I'd spend that much time with God if my life would be completely perfect. Again, Adam and Eve, they're in a perfect land and a perfect garden made by God. The only sin is to not eat a fruit, right? That seems pretty simple, right? You can eat anything you want, do anything you want, just don't eat one type of fruit. And yet they still fell into sin. They still fell for it. So the same is true for us. The Lord, he does it little by little so that in those difficult times, we grow with him. We spend time with him. Again, let's be honest. When do we press more into God? In times of blessing and goodness or in times of difficulty and sadness, right? Even in politics, it's interesting the past eight years, right? How Christians talk about politics with God and religion. It's sort of gotten a lot louder over this past season, right? And when things are comfortable, we tend to forget about the Lord. Same is true for the nation of Israel. When things are difficult and hard, that's when we're pressing and saying, God, you got to do something. Verse 31, it says, And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you shall drive them out before you. This is kind of a downer. It's kind of sad. Israel never grew to its full potential. The nation of Israel, they never grew to this size. They never fully possessed all that God had set for them. King David and King Solomon were the ones who grew the borders to their largest limits. However, we often do the same. God has enormous bounds and blessings for our lives. God tells us that he has plans for us, right? A hope, a future, that he has just such blessings for us that we can't even comprehend them. And yet oftentimes, we fail. He delivers, but we fail to do anything about it. And it's the same here in verse 31. He delivers, but we must drive them out. I hear people say, man, there's just this sin. I just can't get away. It's just who I am. No, you're calling God a liar if you're saying that. 
If you're saying you're in Christ, that you're a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come, and you're saying that there's still a sin that has a hold on you, you're calling Jesus a liar. He's saying there's no sin that holds you down anymore. I have delivered you from all of them, but we must drive them out. David Guzik, he says, there's a spiritual principle here. God may grant, but we must possess. He withholds our possession of many blessings until we partner with him in both faith and obedience. Again, we've been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 once again. But we'll only possess what we will partner with him in faith and obedience to receive. Family, are you inheriting all the blessings that God has for you? Are you overcoming all the sins that God wants you to overcome? Are you tasting of the true blessedness of life submitted to God and in his presence? Or are you just in a rough, rough season because you're not letting go of sins, because you're not letting go of anger and bitterness and anxiety, right? Let's turn to Joshua chapter 17. Very interesting portion of scripture. The children of Israel, they're basically in the promised land at this point. Joshua's their leader, and one of the tribes of Israel begins to complain to Joshua. They say, Joshua, we have so many people, and yet you only gave us this one small area. Give us more land. And Joshua says, you want more land? Go fight the giants. Go clear the land, and all of that is yours. Same is true for us. Joshua chapter 17, verse 14 through 18 It says, the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself. There in the land of the Perizzites and the giants and the mountains of the Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley, they have chariots of iron, both those who are Bethshean and its towns, and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim, and to Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Guys, this is what happens to us today. We're saying, Lord, why don't I have more joy? Lord, why don't I have more happiness? Lord, why is my family not more in order? Lord, why don't I have X, Y, or Z? And the Lord is saying, you can have it. Go and fight for it. You can have it. Go cut it down. Not in a sense of money and wealth and planes and cars, but our spiritual life. And not only are we a great people, and not only do we have great power, but we have more power than the tribe of Joseph could ever imagine. We have the power of Jesus Christ living in each and every one of us. We have the Holy Spirit more than willing to comfort us, correct us, and guide us each and every day. If we are lacking when it comes to sin and not living the blessed life, oftentimes it's just because we're too proudful and we're not humbling ourselves, asking the Lord and asking His Word. Oftentimes we're just too lazy to do what must be done and we're making excuses for it. Or if we are completely, completely honest, 
We simply love our sin and we're too ashamed to say the truth. Family, may we do what needs to be done. May we not live a life of regret thinking of the land we could have had. To think of the blessings we could have had, the family we could have had, the spouse we could have had, the marriage we could have had if we would have only been obedient and faithful to God. We don't have to live in regret. Today, you can choose to drive out all that God has delivered you from. You can make that decision, but it is a decision that we must make. Back to Exodus chapter 23, verse 32 and 33. Again, God continues to remind them the dangers of these foreign nations, these foreign idols, their foreign gods. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Again, God knew and God warned, yet the nation of Israel, they would make covenants with the people of this land. They would serve their gods and they would sin against the Lord their God. Again, family, may we not inherit the losing idols of this world and bring them into our homes. Right? That's a terrible strategy. Anybody else here like strategy, like games and stuff like that? If you see someone have a strategy that loses every single solitary time, are you like, I got a great idea. I'm going to do that strategy, right? If you like losing, maybe. I don't know about you guys. I don't like losing, right? I'm pretty competitive. But when we look to the idols of the world around us, when we look at the marriages of the world around us, the sex, the promiscuity, the ideas of the world around us, and we know it's a losing strategy, we should never try to inherit that and bring that into our homes. And say, you know what's going to be great for my family? To live like the world. You know what's going to be great for my marriage? To treat my wife like the world treats their wives, right? It's a losing strategy. That's insanity. And yet our flesh wants that and the enemy is seeking to steal and kill and destroy we jump into chapter 24 now God speaks with Moses and he says come up to the Lord you and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar and Moses alone shall come near the Lord but they shall not come near nor shall the people go up with him so the Lord has given his covenant, right? He's given his contract. This is what I'm willing to do. If you're willing to do this, then I'm willing to bring you all of these blessings. Now he calls up not only Moses, but the elders of the nation of Israel. If you remember a couple of chapters ago, Moses' father-in-law Jethro looks at Moses dealing with two million people's problems every single day. And he says, the thing that you're doing is not good, right? So it says, hey, get different people, create a leadership team, trust them to do certain things, trust them with five, with 10, 500, 1,000, 10,000, and go from there. So now Moses is taking his leadership team, and God is saying, come up to the mountain with me. Your leadership can come up to a certain point, and you're going to come up even closer. Again, this is another principle where when we serve the Lord, we will be drawn into tighter communion with God. The only men that were able to come close to the mountain were those in service, those in leadership. And it's the same today. If we're just always putting our hand out at service and I don't want to serve, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. Again, Jesus, that's kind of his whole reason for coming to earth, right? Was not to be served, but to serve. That's how we grow nearer and nearer with the Lord. Verse 3, so Moses came 
He told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Again, this is the second time they've said this. We don't know if they just took it lightly. We know the New Testament tells us to count the cost before we commit to living a life for Christ. We don't know if they didn't just count the cost. Like, yeah, sure, sure, we'll do it, right? The earth is quaking. The mountain is on fire. Yeah, we'll do whatever you want, right? We don't know if that's what's happening. We don't know if they're just looking at the promises and they're saying, oh, yeah, this is a great covenant. This is a great contract. Of course we're willing to do that. We don't know really what's going on with them. Verse 4 through 6, we see the heart that Moses had for God. Moses, he writes down all the words of the Lord. He woke up early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood, he puts it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkles upon the altar. Again, the heart that Moses had for God. And we should really copy verse 4 for our own lives and verse 5. Moses, everything that God told him, he wrote it down. He wrote it all down. Do you write down the verses that God speaks to you, right? When you come to church, are you taking notes so that later on you can look back and, wow, Lord, look at what you've done for me? He rises early in the morning to spend time alone with the Lord, and he builds an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars and the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, again, the blessing of waking up early and spending time with God. Now, again, thank God we live in the new covenant. You don't have to wake up early and make a giant barbecue in your backyard with 12 pillars, right? That's not the way you serve the Lord. If you want to do that, invite me over. I'll be there. It's okay, right? It's awesome. But that's not what we have to do to worship God. The way we hear from the Lord today is through his word. Again, we spoke about it last week. You're not going to go to a tropical park and see the little hill there and God's presence and power coming upon it, right? And man, I want to hear from God, so I got to go to Mount Trashmore. I got to go to a tropical park. I got to go to a mountain to speak to God. No, Wake up early in the morning, alone with your Bible, cut out all the distractions, pray, ask, Lord, speak to me. You're the author of this book, and yet I can read, and you can talk to me about it. And just begin to read his word and see how he speaks to you. Again, God, he doesn't speak to us very often in an audible voice. He's not going to tap you on the shoulder and tell you what to do more often than not. We have those incredible stories. But the way God speaks to us today, it's through his word. So may we spend time with God. May we rise early with him. And why early? Because that's before everything sort of gets crazy, right? Before the kids are awake, before the neighbors using the hammer drill and the lawnmower and everything. And you're able to sit in stillness and quietness. You could do it in the middle of the day, but just know, right? Even if you leave here, if it's been a long time since you've been able to sit in the presence of the Lord, go home and do it now. But just know your phone's going to go crazy. Someone's going to be calling you about your car warranty, right? Your neighbors are going to turn their music on right away. Your kids are going to be calling you. All the distractions, they're going to come the moment you try to spend time with the Lord. That's why there's a blessing in doing it early in the morning or late at night. Now, verse 5, we see that he sends young men to go and begin this sacrifice. And again, within our lives, the Christian walk is not solo. It's not doing missions alone, but we should be pouring into the younger generation. Stephen Cole, he comments on this. He says, this is a primitive touch. 
coming from before the time of the specialized priesthood, right? Before the Levites. And there's nothing magical in his choice of young men for the task. It's purely a practical consideration. To have to bind and wrestle cattle down to a stone altar required strength and agility. A young man was a natural warrior, so he was a natural priest. And I thought that was pretty cool. And for the men here, we need to be the priest of our homes. And the way we do best at being a priest of the home, it's not by being lazy. It's not by letting anything go in our homes, but by being that spiritual warrior. Willing to wrestle things down. Willing to fight for our wives and our families. Willing to fight for the Lord our God. Verse 7 and 8. He takes the book of the covenant. That's probably everything he wrote down of everything that God told him. And now he reads it in the hearing of all the people. And they once again said all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And now Moses he takes the blood. He sprinkles it on the people And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now again, I don't know how you guys would have handled this, right? We know that they killed a bunch of oxen. Half of the blood went on the altar. The other half of the blood basically went to basins, went to buckets. And now Moses goes, all righty guys, you want to do this? Yeah, we want to do it. And just flock at that, right? He's just throwing all the blood on all of them. We don't know if all the young bucks got super soakers, right? And they're just squirting blood everywhere. We don't know what in the world is going on, right? Why is all of this happening, right? God is creepy. God is weird. No, that's not all of this is happening, right? Half the blood went on the altar for the Lord, and half of the blood went on the people. What they were showing is that they were both agreeing to be bound to this covenant and contract. And in our relationship with Christ, he gives us a covenant. And God says, hey, I'm willing to give you all these blessings, but you need to do your part. Again, it's a battle, it's a race, it's a fight. We always talk about the height, it's great and it's awesome, but there's no spiritual scripture talking about the spiritual life is like the lazy river, right? Oh Lord, just lead me on the spiritual river of life and lead me down to the pina coladas on the side of the pool, right? No, there's nothing like that. It's a battle, it's a fight. That's what we need to do. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, the blood of Christ is what grants us entrance into this new covenant, which again cleanses us of our sins. The old covenant, it never cleansed the people from their sins. It was just the payment that was necessary for their sins to continue on. Let's turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 13. And here in Hebrews, again, we see the power of the blood of Christ and how blood needs to be shed for the atonement of sin. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Again, there's a covenant. There's a contract we've entered into. God is willing to do his part, but now we must do our part. And it's all through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we would be willing to allow him to work his will in us. That we would be willing to drive out the things that would keep us from being pleasing in his sight. That's our end of the bargain. That's what we need to keep. Let's turn real quick to Romans chapter 12 as we're talking about right, sacrifice and altars and a covenant. Here in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2, this is a part of our deal. This is what we need to do in a part of our covenant, our contract with the Lord. Verse 1 and 2 it says, Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore brethren... By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, but now we're supposed to present our lives like a living sacrifice for God. I don't know if you've ever done any grilling or any barbecuing, but usually, right, I don't know what you guys are grilling or barbecuing, you don't have to worry about the meat getting off the grill and running away, right? Because it's dead, it's butchered, it's been cleaned, you've salted it, peppered it, all that stuff. The difficulty with a living sacrifice is naturally we don't want to be sacrificed. Naturally, our flesh does not want to be put to death. Naturally, we don't want to have to tell our own selves, no, you're wrong. Let's do things right according to God's word. So again, a part of our lives is to make sure that we're staying on the altar. Saying, Lord, I'm not going to get up from here. No matter how much my flesh hates it, no matter how much my pride hates it, Lord, I'm going to wait here because, Lord, I want to be well-pleasing in your sight. Lord, I want you to renew my mind. Lord, I want to be good and acceptable in your will. I want to prove that will. So again, our part of the covenant, we love the idea of heaven. We especially love the idea of not going to hell. But we need to keep our end of the bargain. Again, a big question is if you don't love Jesus that much, why do you want to be in heaven? What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus Christ is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. What makes hell hell is that you're completely separated from Christ for all of eternity. So if you really don't enjoy spending time with Jesus today, why would you want to be stuck with him for all of eternity? Again, again, this is the joy of heaven to those of us that have felt the shame of our sin and the weight of our sin and the freeing and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else I want to be than in the presence of the Lord. But if you're not there, you can either be honest with yourself. And now if you want it, ask the Lord. Lord, create in me that clean heart. Lord, give me that desire for you and for your presence. But be honest with yourself and make sure you're not just clinging to Christianity as fire insurance to not go to hell. While yet you're hating the sacrifice and you're hating Jesus and you're hating to be obedient to his word. Right? That, that all doesn't make any sense. I, I hope you guys see that, right? Imagine if you're dating someone or engaged to someone and you can't stand them whatsoever. Are you going to like want to get married to them? I just hate being single so much that I just want to be with this person that I just absolutely hate and it's super annoying to me. I just hate being single that much, right? That's kind of when we just don't want to go to hell because we don't like hell and we want to be in heaven. It's almost the same thing. 
I'm not attracted to this person. I think they're ugly. They annoy me. They can't do this, that, or the third. But hey, at least it's not being single. That's a terrible marriage, right? Same is true for Jesus and heaven and hell. I don't know how we went on that tangent, but let's go back to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. And again, this is awesome. Look at the heart of God and what he wants from his people. There's been the altar. Their sins have been paid for and atoned for by these animals being put to death. They've entered into this covenant with God. And now what does God want? The God of creation, the God that destroyed the strongest army in the entire world. What does this God want from these people? Verse 9 through 11. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet... As it were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Two things here. Again, we looked at it, I think it was last time we were together. What was the whole point of being freed from Egypt? To be drawn nearer to God. The whole point of the altar, the sacrifice, remission of sins, blood having to be shed so that we could be closer to God. So that we could have a friendship and relationship with him. God's word tells us no one has seen God face to face. That if anyone would see his glory, they would die that very moment. So we don't know if they just saw God's feet, his cloak. We don't know if they were perhaps sitting with Jesus. And this is another Christophany where they're breaking bread with Christ. But it tells us that he did not kill them. He wants to extend grace on us. Again, he doesn't want us to come to Christ and then bully us or suck the fun out of life. He wants to come and bring us nearer to him only through the blood of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, so that he can give us more grace and then so that we can what? Eat and drink with him. That's what our God desires. He didn't say, hey, bring the 70 elders up here and let's have a kiss my feet ceremony. He didn't say, hey, bring the 70 elders of Israel up here and here's some mops, here's some brooms, clean all the sapphire paved floor. He wanted to sit down with them. He wanted to eat with them. He brings them into the very throne room of God. We don't know if God actually transported them into the throne room. If this is a picture of the throne room, we know the throne room of God has the same thing. Sapphire stone, all this glory, all this power, the heavens in its clarity. But what does God desire to do? Sit down and eat with them. You can think of Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Poor guy, right? Not only was he short, but then he worked for the IRS. Not only did he work for the IRS, but then he was crooked and he would steal double from people's taxes. You have a grown man hiding in a tree, climbing up a tree so that he could see. Jesus walks right up to him and says, hey, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. I'm coming to your house today. Again, family, that's what our God desires from each and every one of us. It's to fellowship with you, to sit down and be able to eat with you and spend life with you and share with you all the blessings that he wants to share. But we need to allow him to deliver those things and then we need to drive those things out. We need to come through the blood that was shed through Jesus Christ on the cross. But again, he's that perfect father. All he wants is to spend time with his sons and with his daughters. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain 
of God. Again, the same idea here. Moses, an older man with the Lord, spending time encouraging a younger man to walk in the Lord, having him close to him. Verse 14, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Those of us that have read through the story, we know this was a bad, bad idea, right? Aaron didn't do too hot of a job taking care of the nation of Israel or making sure they did well. It would be like asking my four-year-old to watch my two-year-old while I go out somewhere, right? It was bad. Verse 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and he went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Again, a couple interesting things here as we close. Moses, thank God he had Joshua with him, right? He goes up and he waits six days before he hears a single word from God. How often do we spend five minutes, right? And we're like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. Zach said to do it. Okay, we're going to go here. I got got nothing. Doesn't speak to me. I got nothing from this. God, do you even want to speak to me, right? Moses has God himself call him up to a mountain. God sits down, eats with him, drinks with him. Then he says, you go up even further up the mountain. And then he's waiting six days. No food, no water, no internet service, right? No Netflix, no YouTube. Six days waiting to hear from the Lord. And yet he still waited. Again for us, be and lock into, Lord, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to be committed to this, Lord. I'm going to be committed to a year of trying you out and your word. And, Lord, you show me if you're real or not, right? Commit to him. Six days, not a peep. And yet Moses is still there waiting to hear from God. The other interesting thing, verse 17, from the outside to the nation of Israel, the cloud, the mountain looked like a consuming fire. From the outside, the relationship of God with man looks terrible, right? What do people tell us? Oh, man, you have to go to church every Sunday. Is that your parole officer? Oh, you're going to a couple's retreat? Are you in a problem in your marriage and now your wife's making you go, right? The world around us looks, oh, religion, oh, it's terrible. The world around us, how they look at marriage. Oh, you're going to have that ball and chain. You're going to be stuck. How are you going to live your life? How are you going to do anything? But inside the intimacy of being with the Lord, Inside the intimacy of a good marriage, there's just safety. There's just joy. There's fulfillment. There's peace there. And Moses, he goes on to spend 40 days and nights with the Lord. He comes down. Aaron, his brother's done a terrible job. They're all naked, worshiping and singing around the golden calf. He breaks all Ten Commandments at once, right? He breaks the two tablets. Then he goes back up the mountain another 40 days and nights. 80 days without food. 80 days without water, and yet Moses, he comes down and he looks stronger than ever. He looks healthier than ever. How in the world? Because he was in the presence of God. It's interesting, both in the Garden of Eden and later on in in heaven, our bodies aren't going to necessarily need food as much as they need today. 
We know when Jesus comes in his resurrected body, he doesn't have blood. He has flesh and bone, but he doesn't have blood. He's working on the spirit. It's the spirit that fulfills him. It's the spirit that gives his sustenance. In heaven, there's no sun. We know without a sun, we'd all be frozen, right? Instant death. But in heaven, being in the presence of Christ, it gives the whole entire heavens enough light and enough life to go and continue. So perhaps our true reason for being here is to be in the presence of God. Perhaps the only place where we will find true fulfillment and true joy and true energy is being in the presence of God. Sometimes we think it's food. Sometimes we think it's girls or guys, sex, drugs, all these things. And it leaves us empty. But when we spend time in the presence of God, you feel full. You feel sustained. You feel that joy. So again, may we grow in sitting in the presence of the Lord. And again, may we grow in the Lord. He's already, he's already done the work. He's already delivered them. May we now drive them out. Let's do our part, right? It always makes me think of Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? Jonathan and his armor. What does the armor bearer do? He just like cleans the armor. That's all the guy does, right? He takes care of the stuff and he says, hey, man, let's look at that enemy barracks. What do you think? Should we go up there, go to the high ground? We all know high ground is bad. Don't go up the high ground, right? Let's go up to the high ground and let's take on that whole group of Philistines, And he said, all right, man, let's do it. And God's word tells us that Jonathan gives his sword to his armor bearer. He says, I'm going to knock him down. All you have to do is kill him. I'm going to knock him down. All you have to do is kill him. And that's exactly what the Lord wants to do with us when it comes to sin, when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to being able to live the blessed life. God is saying, hey, I've already knocked him down. I've already delivered you from all these things. But you have to put the sword through them. You have to kill them. Not literally. Don't literally go out and do this, right? But those things that are holding us back, got to cut them off. Got to throw them far from you. Is it the computer? Is it technology? Man, you don't need that to live. Is it a certain group of friends? Is it a certain restaurant, a certain bar? You don't need those things to live. Again, better to get into heaven looking like a pirate, right? With a hook, with a peg, and with an eye patch. Better to get into heaven looking like that than get into hell with all of your members. So again, may we live the blessed life, not having any regrets, not having any, any regrets to say, Lord, why did I not taste and see how good you really were? Lord, why did I allow my family to fall apart because I was too prideful to ask for help and ask you to cleanse me? Lord, why did I live a life of so much promiscuity and sexual partners and all this garbage and I have no peace? Lord, why did I do that? You could live the blessed life. He wants to deliver you. The question is, do you want to be delivered and be faithful and be obedient? 